Amen. So if you have your Bibles, uh, do turn to Isaiah. Uh, and I'm, I'm excited. Like Matt said, I, I also, uh, there's some trepidation in coming to uh, this this book of the prophets. Um, I think for many of us, even if we've read Isaiah over and over again, there are parts, there are chapters, there are sections where we feel pretty at home. Um, and then there are parts where we just get lost. Um, so if you relate to that at all, um, you're in good company. This is what Luther said. He said, the prophets have a strange way of talking like two people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they are getting at. That made me feel a lot better when I realized that, that Luther said that. Um, we're we're going to work through this together, and, and I am, uh, I'm very excited to go through and, and see uh, the gospel according to uh, Isaiah. Um, We've got some resources for you. There's uh, bookmarks on your seat that, that will help you. Uh, if you follow the bookmark, you'll, you'll be reading right along with us. And I, if you didn't get a bookmark, there's some bookmarks spread out on these chairs here. Um, at the front doors, and, uh, and I think also on our back little table there, there's a reading guide for the book of Isaiah um, that'll give you a, a lot of just helpful background, help you to identify themes as you're reading through, so you'll, be, you'll know what you're looking for. Um, um, so I, I'd encourage you to get this. Matt Q made this. He made the bookmark. He made another thing that's actually going to come out next week um, as well. And for our people online, I don't think we have these linked yet, but we'll have all these resources linked for you. So big thanks to Matt Q. Thank you to Alyssa for working long hours this week to get all this stuff together, to get the graphics and all that. Um, but Isaiah 1, where we are today, uh, serves as an intro for the entire book. Um, but it, it doesn't intro maybe what you'd think. It doesn't intro the prophet to us. It introduces instead uh, the setting, uh, the, the, the scene, the circumstances that, um, that Israel is in. So we'll, we'll see Israel's rebellion. We're going to recognize uh, the need that exists for justice. Um, and, and we're going to see that Israel is in such bad shape that there is no chance at them saving themselves. Um, but we will see hope. Uh, we will see hope that God uh, wants to save, that he will save a remnant of his people even though they continue uh, to pursue unfaithfulness, to pursue other things. Uh, ever since sin entered the world uh, in, in the garden, um, right away we remember that God promised that he would send a seed from the woman that would crush the snake and its seed. Um, so I, I want to give you kind of the plot line of Isaiah, and you don't need to write this down. Uh, bring it up on the slide here because it's, it's in this handout that I just mentioned. Um, so the, the story is Yahweh's covenant plan to bring blessing and salvation to all nations, right? Through Abraham, through Israel, through uh, the Davidic Messiah. The problem is that Israel... God's people and the nations have rebelled, resulting in the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the line of David. So the plot asks this question, how is Yahweh going to fulfill his covenant promises in the face of Israel's rebellion and exile? So all that is on that, that handout that we have in the back and at the doors for you. So let's jump in, verse one. 
the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. You might remember that after Solomon, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the, the northern, which is Israel, and the southern, which is Judah. So by this time, where we pick up in Isaiah, the northern kingdom, Israel, um, is really in, in its final years. Uh, the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians in uh, 722 BC. The southern kingdom, which is Judah, uh, would fall to Babylon a bit more than 100 years later, about five, uh, I think it's 586 BC. Um, Isaiah, his name uh, reminds us of something. Uh, his name means Yahweh saves. And, and like we just heard as Matt read and, and like we'll hear in the book of Isaiah, we'll hear a, a lot of judgment, a lot of uh, kind of doom and gloom, uh, so much so that it might be hard for us to see the hope at times that Isaiah talks about, that, that salvation, that God will bring about this, this king. He will bring about the Messiah. Salvation will come. But even the name Isaiah reminds us of this hope, that, that Yahweh saves. These kings, we don't have much time to talk about them, but, but they help with the context too. These kings are totally inadequate. Isaiah sees that, that there will be a good king that will come from the line of David, um, the king that God's people have always always needed him, uh, have, have always needed, but, but Israel's best kings, they failed to be this good king. And this week in chapter one, and even next week in uh, two through five, uh, we're going to see judgment and hope, judgment and hope over and over again, judgment and salvation. These two uh, are, are prominent themes throughout the book. Um, so even, even as the overall feeling uh, of impending judgment will be there, we've got to look for the hope that, that Isaiah is presenting clearly that, that God will save his people. So uh, chapter one, I, I want to kind of break down how, to, how you can maybe categorize um, these, these verses. I hope this helps you. Uh, so verses two through nine, um, God's going to uh, lay out the accusation against Israel, and uh, we're going to read these uh, metaphorical descriptions of judgment. And then in 10 through 20, um, accusations about hypocritical worship and how they violated the covenant. And then in 21 through 26, we have this poem about uh, uh, Zion's uh, purification and restoration. And then the book, or the chapter ends 27 through 31 with this final description of future hope, Zion's judgment, which, which leads to Zion's restoration. So verse two, he says, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. So the setting here is like a, a courtroom, right? But, but not, just, not just on like the city level, not, not the federal level, not, not the Supreme Court. No, this is like a cosmic courtroom. And God is bringing his charges. He's making his case against Israel for their unfaithfulness. So he says, listen, heavens, pay attention, O earth. Right? The Lord is invoking the covenant witnesses. Right? We, we read about the covenant witnesses in, in Deuteronomy. There's no doubt that when the Lord presents his case against Israel, all of heaven and earth will agree with him. They, they, will, they will find that he is true in his judgment. We read here, he says, children, right? We, we, uh, we remember that oftentimes God refers to Israel as his children, right? He is their father, and they, they've walked away from their father. They've walked away from the love 
of their father. And, and this judgment, we've got to recognize, is not apart from the love of the father. It's all in the context of this covenant that he's made. Verse three, he says, the ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand, right? Even an ox knows its owner. The phrase is not smart as an ox, right? It's dumb as an ox. Even this dumb, dumb animal knows their master, but Israel doesn't know God, their father, their creator, Their provider is unknown to them, but he should be known by them. He's the one who saved them from slavery to to the Egyptians. God miraculously provided the way of escape for them through the waters of the sea. And he called them to obey the law, to obey Torah. And they were to become a priest of uh, a priest to the nations, that they would be light to the world, pointing to Yahweh. They knew Yahweh. They, they should. They should continue to know him. And, and know is a covenant word. Um, Exodus 6, 7 says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. God made his covenant. He, he made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel that a descendant would come from David and, and that would bring uh, blessing to all the nations. Israel knew God, but at this point, you cannot tell. We can know God because he has revealed himself through his word. Jesus has come to save us from slavery to sin. Israel chose to rebel instead of choosing to know and follow God. Verse four, he says, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evil doers, children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They have utterly, or they are utterly estranged. Holy One of Israel. We're gonna see this multiple times in Isaiah. It's an important descriptor of God to uh, Isaiah in his writing. They've rejected the Holy One. There is no other God. And, and, and Yahweh is totally deserving of all worship. He is truly other, but not just in his essence. His otherness is distinctively moral. So Israel's immorality is an affront to who he is. And for Israel to forsake God uh, in this way, it dooms them to continue to pursue immorality. But notice he doesn't just call him the Holy One. He says, the Holy One of Israel. God has purposely chosen them. He has committed himself to them, though they reject him. They're estranged from him. So in verses five through eight, we see the results of Israel's sin. It says, why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. So he uses this metaphor of health. And health is the normal state of the body. It's, what, it's how we expect our bodies to be. So if the body is sick or wounded, we know that something's wrong. And Israel is sick 
and wounded. Their wounds have come from a confrontation with the Almighty. God has punished them for their rebellion. Now, if the body's sick, something needs to be done in order to heal it. If there are wounds, these wounds need to be taken care of. But their sickness isn't a matter uh, of some unknown disease, right? They're sick because they've poisoned themselves with sin. They pursued sin thinking that it would bring life, but it has only made them sick. Uh, One commentator, Oswald, um, writes about God's hatred of sin. He talks about God not being like a a red-faced tyrant that's just raging against those who oppose him. His hatred of sin, he says, is just as intense as his approval of righteousness. God is not without personality. He feels deeply, and these feelings aren't arbitrary. They aren't fickle. He's intimately and passionately connected with his creation. And next, uh, Isaiah moves from from the imagery of of health to desolation. Verse 7, he says, Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour devour your land. It is desolate and overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Uh, lodge in a cucumber field. Every time it makes me think of like a weird Airbnb posting, like who's going to rent that? But what's going on here, right? The, the workers of the field, they, they lived at home in the village, right? And they would they'd walk from the village to the field, do their work, and, and then go back. But when it was harvest time, there was too much work to do. Right? There's too much energy uh, expended. So, so they set up like these little lean-tos, these, these temporary houses for themselves, these little shacks, so that they could, they could work until the day was done. They'd go to sleep in the shack, wake up, and start working again. And, and this is what Isaiah compares them to, right? Because once, once the harvest is done, these things are abandoned, and no one's there to take care of them. They, they, they kind of break down, and this is what Israel is like. One of the themes that we see in Deuteronomy is uh, the results of obeying God and the results of uh, rebelling against Yahweh. Blessings when you obey and curses when you disobey God. And their disobedience has not led to blessings. It's led to, to God being against them. Uh, however, as, as bad as this picture is, right, as miserable as a worn out, abandoned shack is, the shack is still standing. It's not destroyed. And likewise, Israel, though it's battered, though it's beaten, it is not destroyed. There's still hope. And that hope is there because God has made it so. Verse 9 says, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah, right? God could have made Israel like Sodom and Gomorrah, just totally destroyed them. That's how far they've gone. They are like Sodom and Gomorrah. But God has left a remnant of survivors. And Isaiah sees that there is hope. Even if it won't be realized in his lifetime, he believes that that even though Israel is like this dilapidated shack in, in some cucumber field, God will restore his people. Verse 10, he says, Hear the word of the Lord. 
you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And now the accusations of their hypocritical worship and and their violation of the covenant come in. Verse 11, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. Boy, so, so much of this sounds so familiar to Sermon on the Mount. Right? Each of us knows what it's like to, to go through uh, the religious motions, right? externally look right, um, but, but internally we're not really worshiping God. We're, we're just paying him lip service. Right? We can go through the motions physically, but have hearts that are totally detached from worshiping the Lord. It is so easy. We, we can relate to Israel. It's so easy for our religion to become hollow and, and rote. We can show up to church and smile. We can raise our hands. We can pray. We can sing and be totally dead inside. We can read our Bibles every day right, for a long, long time and, and yet be totally detached from the Holy One. God is not pleased. He does not want our vain worship. He he doesn't want us to put it on cruise control. He doesn't want us to go through the motions. He doesn't want more sacrifices. He doesn't want an all-day worship service. That's not what he's asking for. And he describes it as burdensome, right? That his soul hates it. Verse 15, he says, when you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And and what is going on there? God won't listen to my prayers? Well, if you're trying to fool him with exterior religious actions and, and not treasure him in your heart, yeah, he's not listening. He isn't listening to the prayer from the person who gives him lip service but isn't devoted to him. And now Isaiah shifts into what Israel needs to do. Verse 16, he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. It's a call to repentance. Now, of course, it is God that cleanses us by his grace. But our responsibility is that we turn from sin and we turn to the true God. Verse goes on, it says, remove the, uh, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Right? Stop sinning. Do good. Do what God says is good. Seek those things. Don't let oppression slide. Care for the weak. What do we need to stop doing? What sin do you need to stop pursuing and justifying? What things do we need to start doing that God has so clearly laid out for us? Verse 18, 
He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. And this word reason is sometimes used of arguing a court case. Right? And if we're called to court, we know that we are guilty. But look at the deal that God offers. And, and, yeah, if we continue to rebel, right, the, the result will be destruction. But, but if we turn from sin and obey, we will truly enjoy the blessings of Yahweh. He says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool, right? So here they hear the words of free pardon based on the substitutionary death of the Christ, the appointed sacrifice. The Lord's pardon, like all his action, uh, all his actions accord perfectly with his justice. He uses the imagery there of snow and wool. Both of these are naturally white. They're not made white by bleaching them out. So the promise here is of a new nature, a holy nature. It's not, not just a cleansing of the past. Verse 19, he says, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Obedience matters to Yahweh. Right? We, we must be uh, obey willingly, not just offer God conformism. The commands of verses 16 through 18 are backed by serious divine uh, sanctions. Obedience is the key virtue of God's people, and disobedience leads to their worst calamity. There's hope, but it's not in our ways. Our hope is only in God's way. Verses 21 through 26, like I said, it's a, it's a poem, and it's framed with the faithful city. In the, at the top of 26 and the bottom of, uh, or top of 21, bottom of 26. So this poem sets out the societal situation that, that, um, that is confronting Isaiah. Verse 21, it says, how the faithful city, right? Jerusalem, which represents the, the whole nation. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers, right? Once, a, once faithful, right? Full of, of justice and righteousness, which these are characteristics that reflect Yahweh. He's just, he's the righteous one, but, but that's not who God's people are now. They were once the faithful bride to God, but now they're like a prostitute. They've abandoned the Lord and chased after others, Right? What a, a picture to go from faithful spouse to what he says, a whore. And, and this language grabs your attention. Right? You might find yourself thinking, like, isn't that a little extreme to call Israel not, not just an adulterer, but a prostitute selling yourself? Our sin is extreme. Our sin is an extreme affront to the Holy One. Our sin is extreme in its corruption of us. Verse 22, he says, your silver has become dross, right? It's, it's no good. Your, your best wine is mixed with water. Your princes, right? These leaders, they're rebels they're, and companions of thieves. Silver is totally worthless. The, the, the wine, you, you can't just pour a, a little bit of wine in and, and have some of the wine be okay. No, it's, it's, it's diluted through and through. Sin is pervasive, it doesn't stay confined to like this one little area of our lives. No, it, it invades and it corrupts every part. 
So what was once pure is no longer pure, it's corrupted. Their rulers, like the silver and the wine, they're corrupt too, and they're leading the rebellion of Israel against God. They're hanging out with thieves and lawbreakers, and their rulers are a window into all of the people. It says, everyone, everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. So what does the the real ruler, the true ruler think? The almighty, the sovereign one, verse 24 says, therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. He says, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. Relief, what an interesting word for God to use. The sin of Israel really matters to him. He wants relief from it. And notice what they're called. They're the enemies of God. We want to, I want to diminish sin. Right? We want to normalize it. But, but this is the impact when we run after sin. We make ourselves God's enemy. You do not want to be God's enemy. You may have noticed the phrase, the Lord of hosts in there, and we read it before. I had a professor in Bible college. He said, when you, when you read the phrase, Lord of hosts, you need to think that's Yahweh's fighting name. Right? Our, our knees should shake a little bit when, when we read this. this is, it means the Lord of armies. So sin causes divine retribution. Verse 25, it says, I will turn my hand against you. God will oppose them. And that should stop us in our tracks. But look for the hope here. Okay, look at what's coming next. He says, and will smelt away your dross as with lie and will remove all your ally. Do you see what's happening there? Right? God's saying he's going to cleanse. He's gonna clean up the mess. So in the middle of this scary language, there's also language of hope. God is going to make right what humanity has ruined by sin. He's going to take the dross, right? What is, what is now worthless and he will restore it. The purging of sin and the restoring acts of God are one. They go hand in hand. And throughout Isaiah, we're going to see judgment and salvation. Salvation doesn't come without judgment. Think about it. Without Christ stepping in our place, taking judgment, we could not be saved. God's punitive action against sin is also what restores. Verse 26 He says, and I will restore your judges as at first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. God is going to restore. As we went through the book of Samuel, you might remember that it was David who established Jerusalem as the center of Israel, right? This is the city of God's people, not only politically though it was, but also spiritually. It's where he built the temple, So this is where God's people met with God. And though it's been corrupted uh, through Isaiah, God is promising that he will send the son of David who will come for his bride, who will rescue and restore his bride. He will rebuild the city. And throughout Isaiah, we're, we're going to read about this city called Zion. And and I just want you to think of of, uh, the city of God's people. 
Okay, when, when we read Zion, we look forward to what God has promised to do. Hebrews 12, 22 says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festival gatherings. Zion is God's city. This is the place of God where he is with his people. This points us to look forward to, to the new David who will come. He's promising that he will cleanse his people. They will once again be called the faithful city that they used to be, but they've chosen promiscuity. God, however, will cleanse his bride, and once again, she'll be faithful, and she'll be right with God. 127 says, Zion shall be redeemed by justice. There's so much talk in our world today of justice, and I, I think um, that, that everyone wants justice. And we may long for it maybe in slightly different ways, but, but everyone, every human wants justice and human justice is absolutely uh, important. But, but as believers, I hope that what we long for is, is God's description of justice, that we long for biblical justice. Human justice will only get us so far. We need the just judge to bring about real justice pure justice, righteous justice that is perfect. And God promises that Zion will be redeemed by justice. When we long for justice, this, this is what we really want. Not simply the human version, but God's justice. He will redeem. Uh, ransom price will be paid. The verse goes on, it says, and those in her who repent by righteousness, right? It's the repentant who will be ransomed. The redemption is based on what is just. The law demands justice. And this is how we are saved because of Christ's substitutionary atonement. He took our place. The wrath of God for our sin was taken by him and we're saved. What about the unrepentant? Verse 28. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Those who reject God will be consumed. If you choose to forsake him, if you rebel against him, your fate is his judgment. Verse 29. says, For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. You shall blush for the gardens that you've chosen, for you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. Maybe you're going, what is this oaks and, and garden that's, that's withering? Man, this is cultic worship. They're, they're chasing after other gods. They're seeking fertility gods. And, and these other quote-unquote gods, these idols are powerless. They're worthless. All you have to do is, is take away the water and the oak tree withers and the garden dries up. These gods can do nothing. They can't even sustain themselves, let alone give you anything you want. And yet, this is what Israel's chosen, to give themselves over to worthless things instead of the true God. And the same is true of our idols. And yeah, our idols might not be handcrafted, but they're just as powerless uh, there are so many idols that we could list off. The first one that, that comes to mind is money. That, that we, we've made money such an idol in our lives. We think that, that if we just have some more, then we'll be fine, that, that, that it will not fail us. But we see all kinds of really, really wealthy people, right? Wealth beyond what we can even imagine that, that money didn't make 
get all better for them, right? Bill and Melinda Gates this week announced their divorce. Their money didn't seem to help them there. Jeff Bezos, it didn't work for him either. And yet it's so easy for us to worship the almighty dollar. Or, or maybe that's not what you worship. Maybe it's a relationship that you worship or, or maybe it's success. It's your, your career. Yeah, and, and, and you don't sacrifice animals, but, but you make all kinds of sacrifices to be successful. Whatever it is that we worship, Instead of the true God, it's powerless. Uh, like the description here, like the oak in the garden, you take away the water, it's going to dry up. And this is the result in verse 31. This is how chapter one ends. The strong shall become tender and his work a spark and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Right? Every fake God that we put our hope in will dry up and it will leave us dry too, just waiting to catch fire. Chapter one really sets the stage for the whole rest of the book. It lays out the destructive results of rebelling against Yahweh, the, the foolishness of hollow religion. It sets up how desperately justice is needed in our world. It sets up the corruption of human authorities, but throughout it gives us hope that God will redeem, God will restore. Habakkuk, another prophet, spoke of a future day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Isaiah and, and really all the prophets hold out the hope that the king of all creation will bring about a new creation, the new heavens, new earth, in which all nations will worship before the Lord. And it's through this suffering servant that we'll read about the king that God creates a covenant family through this king, a covenant family of all nations who are waiting on the hope of God's justice in bringing a renewed creation where God's kingdom finally comes here on earth as it is in heaven. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the words of uh, this book. And I pray uh, that as we read this, God, you would open our eyes, Lord, that we would recognize how great you are, that we would recognize that, that our sin is rebellion against our creator. But Lord, that, that you, you are so gracious, that, that you want to heal and restore and that, that your judgment and your restoration go hand in hand. God, will you grow us as a people uh, through the, the time we spend in this book? And I, and I pray that, that if there are times when, when we get lost, um, God, will, will, you, will you teach us, Lord? Will you open your word to us so that we can understand? God, we love you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.